Welcome to another episode of Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, El Mejor Podcast del Mundo. Soy Tim Thresh. Y yo soy Joaquín Lobo. And we'll be your hosts for the next hour. Joaquín, how are you? <laughs> I'm telling you, we should do this in Spanish, the entire hour in Spanish. <laughs> one day, one day, one day. And if we don't feel fully satisfied, we can just do it in German or Italian or French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should, we should. Um, we have Google Translate, so it, it would just take a lot of editing because I I could just look at my, oh yeah, you know, just have my phone, my device translate what I'm saying, but then it would take like three hours to do one hour of an episode, and then it would sound like totally bizarre because this software is not perfect. Have you translated yeah. stuff? I mean, it's really awkward, right? Have Have you ever done that? Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have. Oh. No, I have not. It's, it's kind of cool that you have this interlocutor, but but no, I I haven't tried that yet. So, yeah. but yeah. Well, you, my friend, we have a cool episode today. Um, we are looking at our bookcases. <laughs> And we're pulling out what we've recently read, what we have read again, uh, what we can't let go of. Okay. And how many books did you did you pull? No, I haven't pulled any books. I'm just looking at them. I, oh, I, okay. I was okay. talking okay. general about you know, <laughs> I see. Yeah. But I was thinking, I was reading um, the Spanish newspaper El País, and there's this really, really famous guy. Uh, his name is Arturo Perez Reverte. He's like huge in Spain and Latin America. Not as huge in, in translation, I suppose, as he is in, in Spanish. And he was saying that he has like 30,000 books. And um, I, you know, I was thinking how I have been getting rid of books for the past, I don't know, 15 years. No. Uh, I still get books, but I've been trying to get rid of a lot of books. And yeah. there was a time when I had thousands of books. I don't know, not 30,000, but maybe 5,000 books, 6,000 books. Yeah. And, uh, and now, you know, I just, I, I think that there's just a lot of dead weight, especially when you move. Yeah. And, um, I, I remember the first time that I got rid of something like 250 books it was very shocking because I've always loved to have books. I was yeah. reading something that our friend Mauricio posted, um, saying that that there was this addiction, right, to own books, to have books, to surround yourself with as many books as possible. And I had that for for the longest time, and now that's like receding. We were talking about sexual appetite before the before we start recording this episode. And I think that loss for books is also receding as well as other lost uh, are receding in my in my personal life. Yeah, we were talking about how over the 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 course of a writing career, um, you can often see that writers lose a sense of urgency while their craft is really getting better and better. Um yeah, it, I, I, when, when I was young, I, I tried to amass as many books as possible. I, I love to see my bookshelves brim okay. with books, but then I started moving around just so much exactly. that that it became a liability to have books. And and I also, <laughs> I don't know, like I think in my thirties, at some point. I started to look at them like almost like ghosts where we're skeletons yeah. in the closet, something like, because I, I don't re read books. There are only two or three like that I've really reread and that I'm still rereading once in a while, maybe five. And, and so they were just dead. They were standing there and looking at me and I'd go, well, I'm not going to read yeah. you again. And and it felt weird to have them around. Sort of like an old relationship and the old 
girlfriend or boyfriend is still hanging out in your apartment and it felt a little wrong well the old love letters that no longer well, those are interesting <laughs> <laughs> those might be interesting yeah, I remember when I was a teenager, I had two shells in mm. my parents' house when I used yeah. to be in, in that house back in Mexico City. And those two shells were very precious to me. They were small shells, but, you know, I had my favorite poets, my favorite novelists, books that were really meaningful at the time. And the times that I've gone back to visit that room throughout the years I you know I, I just look at those books like wow that's it's so strange that I was so attached to these books that I you know some of them I still value tremendously mm -hmm. some of them I brought with me back to the US yeah many of those books are like don't make any sense anymore <laughs> like they they they're like there was a deadline in the life of those books and they're just so dated and don't yeah. have the same meaning that they used to 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 have back back then does that room still exist yeah it's okay. not the same but you know it's no longer my room it's another room with yeah with two shells still there i don't know why but they're still there how does it feel when you when you when you look at those shelves i mean outside of of that the books have a different meaning now when you when you come into the room where you grew up well, like I said, it's no longer that the same room. So many years have passed, and and uh, you know, it's it's no longer my house. I have a house yeah. with my own family, and I'm not very sentimental. But I I I know that back then, when I was a child, yeah. there were you know the bookcases at my grandfather's house, and they were imposing. They were just huge and full of books. Yeah, uh, I I just love to to go there and steal a book or borrow books. Like there, there were books I could not borrow because they were not appropriate for me. So I used to steal the Decameron, for instance, and read it and then bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, there were the bookshelves, my parents' bookshelves downstairs. And uh, they were not as exciting as, as my grandfather's bookshelves because they, mm -hmm. they used to read more like what was a trendy at the time. And that was great because, you know, back in the 60s, we had Garcia Marquez. And uh, and that was very exciting for me that by the time I wanted to read uh, more contemporary stuff, uh, I, I could find things by Garcia Marquez and, and you know, many, Fuentes, many other writers from Latin yeah. America. Uh, but, you know, you had your usual uh, American best-selling novel you know i remember reading the exorcist uh, you know things like that when when i was very young because they they used to buy my parents used to to get those best-selling novels yeah. yeah my parents had joined a book club so they had every quarter they had to buy a certain mm -hmm. uh money amount of books and and they did and so when when I became a teenager, I suddenly discovered Harold Robbins. <laughs> he's very he's very trashy. That's novels. right. Yes, and, and I was like, oh my god, wow! <laughs> you know, that was a whole different world. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. I remember books from that time. There was a book by Erica Jong called Oh Yeah, Miedo de Volar, Fear of Flying. Yes, yes, and that was another book that I was not allowed to read. That I would like. You know, <laughs> I started reading that once, and she has a lover, <laughs> and he always leaves shit stains on the on the oh, sheets. I don't it, remember. It, <laughs> I couldn't get over that at the time. I was like, "You, I don't." <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Well, I'm glad. Well, thank you for letting me know that. I'm, I don't remember that. Now yeah. I'm thinking about that for the rest of the day. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I so a lot of my books are at my office at the university until yesterday i i went through my office and looked at the shelves i have beautiful they're actually quite beautiful they're very old shelves they're very simple um nothing fancy but but i like them and i have some odd red wood wood paneling in the office mm. which i use 
I hate usually wood paneling, but but that is kind of the exception for me. It's yeah, it's but don't say that because you have an office. I'm I'm ashamed to to say that I'm a full professor at this college and I don't have an office. I never had an office because my college doesn't believe in offices for professors. And that's yeah, it's that's, embarrassing. That's a shame. That's a shame. It is. It's, there's no no excuse for that. It doesn't make any sense. Because no. I could work, you know, I could work at that office for hours. And how many in 24 years that I've been teaching at this place, how many hours I have been deprived of, of intellectual work, right? Because yeah. I don't have a place for my books and a place where I can sit to work on my novel, to write an essay, to 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 record this podcast, etc. Where do you where do you meet for office hours? Oh, we don't have. Well, we meet, you know, whatever we can. <laughs> Sidewalk, the okay. parking lot. <laughs> okay. We don't have a parking lot, so you know, out out somewhere <laughs> in the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Meet me in the smoking corner. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so so I looked I looked at my books and they represent, of course, only a small amount of the books I've read so mm -hmm. far in my life. But I was saddened by by looking at them uh, largely because mm -hmm. it feels that. I've read exactly the same books everybody else has read, which is which is kind of cool because you need, of course, some common ground. But yep. but while there are several, like I mean, rows of books that probably like nobody has ever heard of, I, I, I was still kind of surprised at how little on the shelf surprised me or felt like a like a real discovery and oh my god that is the book that i don't mm. know I, I read 12 years ago and was some cult hit or where other and nobody knows that anymore there were a lot of very predictable choices and and it just made me think about how so much of what we of what we read seems almost inevitable and like like this is what you have to read in order to get to a certain point or to be allowed to talk about things but they seem so arbitrary the choices are so arbitrary and and in looking back on these books that i've had now for many many years it felt very poor in a way i i wish they were more colorful Hmm. weirder wilder um less known you know so i don't know it reminds me of a recent conversation that we had about dna and i feel like ah. books in your the books in your in your personal library are that literary dna that maps your lineage your your uh personal canon your family mm. lines as they go mm. back in time and in 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 the many the different languages that 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 you speak that you that you read and um you know some people have dna that's that's different than others i'm not going to say better or worse it's just that you know it's just different yeah um it's also interesting to see the bookshelf as the record of your life, the non-official history of your life, because you move from book to book as you move from week to week. Uh, throughout the, you know, from the moment you start getting your first books, you know, the books that if you were lucky enough to have parents who bought you books, who read to you, or from the moment you discover uh, reading as, a, you know, that solitary act of um, that where you can be yourself, you enjoy your private time, you 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 learn to discover your epiphanies, mm -hmm. uh, you discover that someone else feels the same way that you do. You're not you're not alone. Uh, other people have suffered from trauma. Other people have you know are have lived just just the, the way in which you have you have lived your your life, even if you're young, and especially when you're young, when that discovery is so important that you're not alone. And uh, if other people 
found a way to articulate their thoughts and their emotions, then maybe through the reading of those thoughts and emotions, you can figure something out about yourself. Yes, totally agreed. But I don't know. So I, I sometimes get the feeling that a lot of people rejoice in the many memories they have. Mm. And they look back on their life and they feel as though they have money in their pocket. That's <laughs> Yeah, they 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 have sort of savings, you know, and and that has never been true for me. Like I look back at my life and I I see a lot of cool things. It's it's not that, but um it doesn't feel like savings, it doesn't feel like something that that I can derive pleasure, a lot of pleasure from. I'm really like like every morning that I wake up, I'm this weird thing that has to reconstitute itself and needs two hours to figure out uh, who he is. And it's dead. I mean, the past to me is largely really dead. And I think that's what I have. That's what my problem with books is, that I look at them and there are only these four or five books that that I still want to touch again, that I still want to read again, that I still want to spend time again. Like what I've done is is kind of over, in a sense, and and that sometimes feels really, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel particularly good, but it it seems. I don't know, like I'm a trash compactor and then I throw the trash out and it's it's <laughs> gone. You know, like like But you don't you don't read every single book that you get, right? I mean, because I, I haven't read all my books. There's like a lot of the books that I have that I haven't read. So I also think of these books as you know, I I, I look forward to having the time to mm -hmm. and I'm gonna die before I can read all of them, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I read all the books. Oh my god, you're crazy. That's you're the first person I know who reads all the books that 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 you have. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I only buy like two or three at a time, if that. You know, I, I really go from book to book uh, oftentimes. And wow. so so I read them and then once in a while they're they're really sort of books that 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 push me into a different either aesthetic or a different way of thinking about mm. what the world might be about or not. But I still can't reread them. I'm like, I, I there's a total block, and I just don't want to have anything to do with them. Even though I cherish them, I don't want to read it again. And I also, I'm sorry, you mentioned that you have like four or five books that you reread. Re mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Is it too much to ask you to mention a couple of titles? No, and and it's it's kind of I I always feel embarrassed by that because they're not like anything. Well, they, they they're great. I love them. So one is a movable feast by Ernest Hemingway. Always hmm. loved that. Um, the very the very thing that makes it maybe not a great book is also what makes it a really great book. This very episodic structure these little vignettes um the passion by Jeanette Winterson is one of them and the notebook by Agota Christoph right um, that's and in those I mean I don't read them like every year like some people watch movies three four times a year re-watch them I, I I don't do that with books but but I do come back to them because they're, yeah, they they seem they seem relatively new again whenever I read them. But even there, I, I'm 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 hesitant. I don't like to revisit things. I guess, sort of, whatever that means. Shall we? Shall we look at some books? Yeah, let's okay. let's look at some books. Do you want to go first? 
Well, sure, because I'm just discovering behind my computer a small pile of books that uh, are really special to me because these are the books that my son read last year at school. Mm. In I, I know some of them, but I love these books because they're annotated by my, mm. at the time, he was 15, my 15-year-old child, annotated copies of Song of Solomon. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, Oedipus wow. King, Lord of the Flies, Catcher in the Rye. And it's just so exciting to see that he's getting a canonical uh, literary education. I yeah. mean, a time where it seems to be going out the window when uh, there is a lot of emphasis in young adult fiction and literature that has to do with your identity and who you are, um, which is great. But I, I think that the role of formal education should be to inform you of of uh, of a canon that can be useful, that, that will shape you as an intellectual and as a reader. And if you don't know what happened before 2000, 20, then I think that you're going to be lacking a, a foundation that I'm glad to see that my child won't be missing, you know, because mm-hmm. I I never read Shakespeare when I was in in high school or or you know my my, my education was not like that. It was really um public me- Mexican public schools, very deficient education. And I read other things, but I, you know, I I I I would not have made any sense of Toni Morrison or Shakespeare or William Golding at the age of 15, the way that my my mm-hmm. is making sense of, of this. I remember reading Virginia Woolf when I was 15, and that was way too early. That soured me on Virginia Woolf unfortunately because right yeah that that came way too early i i, I was not ready to to go to the lighthouse with exactly and I, I wasn't ready to read rufo to read pedro paramo i mm. you know, it was too early for me and yeah. uh, that soured me for many years too to mm-hmm. pedro paramo and now i teach it because i think that is just such a magnificent novel yeah yeah but you know, I have let me. I don't know if you know this room in my house downstairs, but I have on my left. I have a huge uh, uh, set of built-in shelves with all kinds of stuff. I have a section. I have a section with all my books, like copies of all my books, mm, mm-hmm. uh, different editions, and so on. I have another section with uh, mass paperbacks, lots oh. of. Mysteries, Pulp Fiction, Science <laughs> yeah. Fiction. Yeah. Then I have a section of nonfiction with a lot of social, political, cultural studies, literary studies, um, nonfiction, academic stuff. And then I have a section of books, um, like personal favorites, like authors that I really like. And I have uh, maybe... Very few people have this book these days, like Graham Greene. Lots of books and editions of Graham Greene's novels. Mm. Lots of books and editions of James M. Cain, including a few first editions. Uh, Lots of books by my friend, uh, Michael McClure, who died two years ago. And um, then reference books, shelves with dictionaries. You know, remember that back... Back in the day, we used to have dictionaries that you couldn't Google what something meant, so you would go to a book <laughs> yeah. or a dictionary where you know you oh, could yeah. find a lot of really cool stuff if you took the time. And then if you look at what you know, other words that were on the same page, that was very interesting because you found words that you didn't even know existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, I love that's my a, dictionaries. Yeah, that's a lost pleasure, you know. That's mm-hmm. I don't think that many people are looking at dictionaries. I know that my kid doesn't look at dictionaries. It's like why waste time looking, you know? For yeah, something. I don't. I don't either. I'm... 
yeah that's like that's like half of that bookshelf how about you what do you what do you have what what have you picked for this conversation yeah so um i like i like what you just said about the different sections because i have i have those two i i'm not I'm I'm not orderly in the way that that I mean some people have everything ordered by either category of books yeah. or alphabetical and and I was never able to do that because that I don't think that's how my mind works and uh, mm. like like if it were to be alphabetically I, I I don't think I would ever find anything even though I should but but I have also these sections so I have books written by my friends that I keep together and um, often they have been signed and um, I have books uh, like one shelf in my office with um, with these books I, I used to edit their mm -hmm. anthologies for high schoolers about one topic a book and um, it was funny um, last week a colleague of mine came into my office and said, Oh Stefan, when I when I wanted to look up one of your books, there's another guy publishing books under your name. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. And, and so and so we go to the website together. Thank and you. it's all these these youth anthologies that I edited. And oh, wow. And she didn't know that I had done that. I mean it was a long time ago. It was like 10, 15 years ago. So um, and I did that for several you, you years. You should rewrite. You should rewrite that story that Borges wrote called Borges and I. Stefan Kisby and I, and then write about the other Stefan Kisby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there, 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 there are a lot of titles. I, I, I worked on a lot of them. One was actually recently banned in Louisiana by some organization. That sounds um, great. Yeah, no, that that was cool. That, that's a badge of honor. Um, so, so I also have these, and and there there are books that are not allowed to touch, and there are books that that have to be kept at a safe distance that have that have to be sort of isolated from others, um, and and that's how I organize the bookshelves. But have, what I, have you published books that you regret having you know written? Mm, no. No, I don't regret them. I no, but I can't read them. You know, I I never pick them up and look at them again because I think I might have mentioned that before. All my books are a deep embarrassment to me, not because I think they're bad, but it feels just really embarrassing. I I don't know. I I don't know what to do with them. They're they're these weird things that make a certain sense and i like them on on some level but i i don't like thinking about them or i don't like really talking about them i'm just um yeah have you regretted ever writing something oh yeah um, oh. i mean i have a collection of poems the first thing that i published you know that was published uh I uh, I won a uh, state contest mm. 1983 84 and they published my first book and yeah that's a that's an awful book that once in a while it shows up uh, that someone looking for my information like I'm doing a presentation and people say oh well Costi is the author of this collection of poems and I go oh, shit. Because you know people don't want to do real research, so they they Google you and whatever they find. Yeah. Or there is another thing that. Oh, many, I want to read them. I want to read those poems. Many years ago, someone asked me for a poem for an anthology, and I gave them a poem. And that stupid little piece of shit anthology, like, shows up the first thing that that shows up on Google when when you try to find my work, and I'm like. I mean, the most meaningless thing that I ever did in my life is the first thing that shows up when someone wants to know about my work. That's quite irritating. But I think that writing is also, um, you know, an accumulation of maybe not writing, well, writing and publishing, an accumulation of regrets, of uh, <laughs> sense of 
personal shame for some of the things that you've written, some of the statements that you made, the arrogance of thinking that you have something to say and that other people will respect or acknowledge mm. some kind of relevance to that, the entitlement that it takes to think that you're special and people want to know what you what you made, what you crafted. Mm -hmm. And that's that can be uncomfortable. And I'm sure you're not the only one who feels that way, or that I'm the only one who sometimes feels this way. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And 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 it does take a certain arrogance in order to to go out and write a book and then have it published. Yeah. And and I think some people maybe have to make up sort of their their psyche that they can do that again and again and not feel disturbed by it. But it's it's a very it's a very public act of of doing something, and that makes me sometimes queasy. Sort of this this you go out and you put out something there. And then you, well, then you have to live with it. <laughs> it's out there. Except that there are differences to that, Tim. Uh, you have the writer who, you know, the professional writer, the writer who gets a contract every year for every other year for a book. Yeah. A decent check each time they publish a book. And then there is a response and there's the review in many venues and and the book tour, and then it becomes something that, you know, if you're, if that's the way you're paying your bills and supporting your, paying for your three houses and, you know, mm -hmm. kids' college, et cetera, et cetera, then you don't question. I mean, the questions are very different. And it's very different for a writer like me who, you know, struggles to, to, to be published by, by a decent press who, who struggles to, find time to write a book because you know once once you reach the level of you know the writer who who gets that kind of, of financial um uh, uh, reward for writing then that buys you the first thing that that buys you is time time to write mm -hmm. yeah. privately right yeah I and mean, I was reading about Dean Coons it's just amazing that you know this guy is so wealthy and has so much money that, you know, the only thing he wants to do is write. He sits for 12 hours a day to write books. And I, I'm not saying that he writes crap because he writes some really cool stuff. He's, mm -hmm. he's always some really cool stories. But, you know, what what do you have to do? What do you have to leave aside when you, when you can do that? I guess that that becomes, you know, you don't raise kids, you don't do anything else, but right. You know, of course, you don't get on, on the freeway to go teach a class or or go to the grocery store to buy eggs. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes about that because that kind of writer, even though it's great that they can support themselves and their three houses with 10 houses mm -hmm. with their writing, it, and this might be really some 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 weird leftover from some middle class philosophy or whatever it is, but but to me, books still feel like a struggle of sorts. You know that that you're that you can't really live with them. It's sort of like a crazy girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> you're really in love with them, but there's never. There's never a point at which you're at peace with them. They're exciting. They're new. They they keep you awake at night, but you can't really live with them. And at some point, you break up, and that's when the book is finished. I love that metaphor. That's it's it's yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. And in in and, and then the book is kind of dead. You know, then then it's then it's over. You know, and and you you've done your piece, and and you might have enjoyed your time, and maybe the sex was good, or maybe the long night talks were good. Some something was very valuable, but you can't go back into it. Let me let me ask you a question. Do you remember with fondness, and do you miss the process of writing a book? 
you published the book, do you do you think of going back to that time and say, oh my God, that was so great when I was writing this book? Um, I am not happy when I'm not writing a book. I don't like writing books, but I I think I hate it more not to write them. It's sort of like showering. I don't really like to shower. I'm not a big shower guy. I don't get up in the morning and say, whoa, awesome, I get to shower. I'm like, oh, God, now I have to wait for the water to get warm. And ugh, It's still a little cold. And I'm like, okay, I'll soap myself. And then I dry myself and all these things. I, I'm, I'm not excited about it. But after showering, I'm glad I showered. In, yeah. in there's a there's it, it's a good process you know and i think it's it's a ah it sounds stupid but but it's a mental health thing if i don't if i don't make the time to think about what's actually happening or 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 how to craft a story and 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 write something about what people are thinking and what they're doing and all this stuff that that I get lost in the world. Mm. So in that sense, I, I do enjoy it. I don't really enjoy it. It's not, again, like it's not fun. But I mentioned that once I had this uh, friend in Berlin. She was a very well-known actress in Berlin. And she always said, oh, you shouldn't have fun. All these people who want to have fun while they're while they're rehearsing, like, like, <laughs> fun you should have once you're done and you have like a glass of wine or so then you can have your fun you know like but the work shouldn't be fun and and i subscribe to that <laughs> i'm a grouch that way do do you you don't really enjoy the process right no not really i think i did enjoy the first novel and uh actually the last the fifth novel i i also enjoyed because i had the luxury of just sitting to, I got a sabbatical, so I could just sit and, and work on that novel. And the story was, I was really interested in figuring out what was going to happen. So the first and last novel were great. And the two that I just finished now, I was like, oh my God, that, that's a crazy girlfriend, right? That was like. Yeah. That, did you uh, did you write them together? I mean, like a little bit. I wrote one first. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. the second. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. I hope I well, hope that that at some point my Spanish will be good enough that I can read them. Oh, of course it will. You're very smart. It's <laughs> muy inteligente, Tim uh, <laughs> Espero. Um so the first one I did pull um is uh, the Murder Farm. It's a German book, hmm. and um, is it in German or in English? No, I read it in English. Um, the if you read it in English, if you could read it in German, I'm just curious. I'm not. I, I'm I not, never, I never read anything in German. You don't want to read in German anymore? No. Mm -mm. Okay. No, I I don't like the language. I, I I well, it's not true. The language is beautiful, but since our whole way of thinking and of ordering the world is embedded in our language, I don't really like the German language because I think there's something very sinister embedded in that language about how people think of themselves and others. So all the structures of suppression, repression, oppression they are all embedded in the german language and and i don't think you can get away from that and okay. and there's a negativity in german every day that i hear also a lot of other people talk about it's not like just me but um, i'm listening to a podcast of two guys who are not german living in germany one just moved away but they lived in germany and once in a while they talk about how germans 
treat each other or treat them and i'm like oh yeah exactly and, and it's and it's all embedded in the language and so i, yeah, I don't, I don't want to read it that's so interesting i never thought about it about german in that way and it makes total sense <laughs> you know the fucked up cultures will have fucked up linguistic systems yeah. because they of course you know we make we make we make our language based on who we are we mold it after uh, after yeah. a, a way of thinking, feeling, experiencing reality, dreams. I mean, all of that goes into the structure of a language. Yeah, and I read a really super interesting article in the New Yorker two weeks ago, a week ago. Um, it's about Austria in the between the fifties and eighties where they had these weird um, clinics where they tried to manipulate children into not bedwetting, into not masturbating. And those were psychologists left over from the Nazis. And, and yeah, that's, it, that's, wow. Yeah, and, and they were trying to, to take <laughs> uh, unwanted children like often orphans or neglected children, and they herded them into these clinics for a year at a time, six months at a time. And whenever they would wet their beds or do anything undesirable, speak sometimes, they were often kept in total silence, they would be punished. And and so a woman who now lives in in the US in the in the DC area, um who had basically just 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 totally suppressed everything that had to do with that, never talked about to anyone about that, went back uh, because of a book that was published there about these types of clinics, and and the article really chronicles this how this this system of suppression and uh, and to look at children and as these unwanted entities. Uh, was so pervasive after the war in Austria, and and led to these excesses of of ugliness and 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 torture, really almost. Um, so, but but what was interesting to me, really, like I I was never subjected, like I was never in a mental quote unquote mental institution and being tortured or any of that. But all the mechanisms, all the views on children and how they should behave that was my childhood I, I was reading the article and i was like yeah that's exactly how everybody thought about kids they had to be quiet they had to be silenced they they weren't allowed to do really anything everything they did was kind of unwanted behavior and in this kind of repression uh, I, I was like i was stunned by it because yeah that 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 was my childhood <laughs> That explains what you're saying about Austria. That explains the work of one of my favorite filmmakers from Austria, Michael Haneke. Oh, yes. Brutal, dark. This yeah. nightmare's vision of 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 life in in Austrian society, where the most terrible acts acts of psychological violence and physical violence can be perpetrated against each other. Yeah. And he's and he's just merciless. He doesn't spare Austrians any any um kind of criticism as a filmmaker. Exactly. It, it really messes messes you up to watch watch his films. And but you know they're like in a way um case studies of Austrian, European, Western European um emotional and mental uh, instability. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and I want nothing to do with that anymore. I just um, heard this week one of my students, a really bright student that I like very much, he said something about English that it's such an awful language, he said. And I was like, mm. no, English is beautiful. I love English, you know. Mm. So I I find the 
lot of pleasure in reading uh, English and, and and communicating using the tools that these this language provides me with. Um, but I understand that as someone who is a native speaker, just the way you're talking about German, you 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 have this relationship that can be really problematic with with your own with your own language. And I guess he's coming from from that place of being a native speaker. Like he's still, like I said, a really smart guy. Yeah. You know, I haven't had a conversation. I would like to ask him why such a statement. But we we tend to think fondly of other languages before hours you know we always love italian or we love portuguese or people of yeah. french in america people love to love french that's like oh my god that's so romantic and that's so sophisticated and all that stupid bullshit that you know people <laughs> say about french <laughs> oh it's all true it's all true <laughs> <laughs> um yeah in i mean english since it's my acquired language, I, I think it allows me that that peace and quiet. I mean, if you go to India or Pakistan, then English becomes, of course, the language of the oppressor, you know, and 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 something that was forced on your culture at some point, and the and it becomes very problematic in that way. I chose English, and in in that sense, it's a freeing language to me. And right. however imperfect my prose will ever be, I feel I, I am allowed to write in that, and I don't have to write in that. And and that's yeah, that's 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 all it takes, and makes me. It allows me to to just think about what I want to say, in a way that doesn't feel that I'm reproducing exactly what I'm trying to get away from. So. I don't. I don't think of Spanish as uh, as uh, the language that was imposed on me because by the time I started to read and write in Spanish, I, I already had a canon mm. of Latin American writers who made me feel that that language belonged to me, that I had I had a claim to it. Mm, that's uh, beautiful. If you look at if you look at my, I was talking on my shelves. I mean, most of my books are in English, but I do have a lot of books in Spanish, and I I love Spanish. I write in Spanish. I couldn't be a, the, the, the writer that I am in English. And I, I think I'm a pretty good writer in Spanish. Um, but I, you know, the, maybe the way I, I deal with the issue of colonization is psychologically, I, I just don't have a deep connection with uh, writers from Spain. Uh, I mean, mm. of course, I love Cervantes. I love some really big, important names in 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 Spanish literature, Spaniard literature. But I I really don't think that I have a lot of affinity for writing from contemporary writing from Spain. I just don't care about yeah. Spanish writers at all. I I'm a lot happier reading a writer from Argentina yeah. or Mexico or Colombia than someone from Spain because it feels very distant. I just I just can't connect with writers from Spain. Yeah, and Spanish also has the advantage, I mean, at least to me it looks like an advantage that you have so many countries where it's spoken, sometimes a bit differently, and but but it's you have a vast network of writers like that that work on that same project it, with germany it always seemed to me it was such a small world it's it's parts of switzerland it's austria which i hate and <laughs> it's germany which i also hate you know and and so that's that's it nobody else speaks german you know and and it didn't seem like it's a language that opens the world to you it's just a very, very tiny segment of the world population that speaks it. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about poets? Are there any German poets that you appreciate? Mm, I mean, old ones. Um, I mean, dead ones. Uh, yeah, of course. Rilke, you know, and, and there might be living ones, but I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in poetry at all. But um, Heine, 
uh, I mean, they they wrote poetry that is that is still stunning and in, in, in where it can look at the German language and just go, wow, you know, you would not be able to replicate that particular beauty in any other language. And that <laughs> makes me always happy to see that. I like a lot of the poetry of Bertolt Brecht, mm-hmm. um, more famous for his theater work, but also a devastating poet. I mean, super, super beautiful, and yeah. and 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 it, it it hits you. He's he's probably maybe not the most highbrow poet. Like his his language is. His 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 something very very punchy and and deft and, and and comes I think from from an affinity to uh, yeah it's 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 a lowbrow affinity I, I I think and and I don't mean lowbrow in any negative sense uh, like like low and high is not good and bad or something like to me but 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 just sort of street slang. Uh, how people speak on the streets, and 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 maybe that's an artifice. Maybe nobody ever really talked that way, but but it's gorgeous, and I and I really love that. Um, do you like Paul Celan? I do. Yeah, that was that born, was born in Romania, but still he wrote it. He was German writer for all practical purposes. Yeah, his, uh, the first time I I heard him was was in a was in a German class in high school and and the teacher was saying oh I'm just going to read you this poem and you can sit wherever you want in the, in, in the classroom just just listen you know don't we'll, we'll see that poem we'll see the famous dark black milk yeah that fugue yeah, yeah. Oh my and and, and I was and I was like because the teacher said oh sit wherever you want I was like yeah. all right I'm gonna sit on these we had these very broad windowsills, so you could sit in the window, and and I was sitting there and just closing my eyes, and she was, and she was starting to read it, and it was, yeah, it was it it it, it, it came as a shock the poem, and as a as a as a beautifully aesthetic, but also, oh my god, yeah, really. I mean, it was a gut punch, you know, and and I it, think I think it's one of the most powerful poems ever written. Yeah, one of the most powerful poems of the twentieth century, that fugue. And uh, I remember, I remember the shock of reading it the first time, and I remember how devastating it was. Um, I, if I were to read it again, I think I, I would. It would put me in a very vulnerable place right now. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that was something also. I mean, at, at the time, I had no no knowledge of anything. I mean, I've been reading since I was a kid, but 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 it's that a piece of writing can do that. That was that was very beautiful. You know, just to. To suddenly like listen like like there's these two lines that rhyme and they're really as loud as a as a pistol shot really and and it was amazing it was really and 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 you can understand that poem in German I can't I mean I have I have read it in English I have read it in Spanish I can only imagine the power of that poem in German uh, it. I mean, I always talk about this with my students that we we miss so much when we read something in translation. And now that they're speaking, learning learning Spanish, and of course you're already uh, bilingual, at least English, German, you know how how different it is to read something in the original language. Yeah, uh, although, I mean, I mean, I, for example, like just a stupid example, but but when I first started reading Hemingway, I, I read him in translation, and, mm. and and it was still powerful enough that I was like, "Holy cow!" You know, this is this is something that I haven't read before. You know, this is something that that 
that I want to discover more of. And, and so, so sometimes, I mean, it doesn't always work, but, but sometimes enough makes it through the translation um, that, that it becomes powerful, maybe in a slightly different way, but, but maybe, maybe equally so. We'll have to have another, um, a part two of this episode because we didn't really <laughs> have to talk about, like I only spoke about one, one section of my, one of my bookcases. I still have a lot of, a lot of uh, shelves and, and bookcases that I didn't get to, to, yeah. to discuss, but maybe some other time. Yes. Yes. And I still have these books that, I want to mention so part two. Mention one at least. I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, the murder farm. the The original title is Tanud, which is oh. a which is a way better title because it has sort of the pine tree and Ud as an as in sort of barn in it um, as the the name of that village. The English title, the murder farm, is. Uh, uh, not great, but whatever. But it was a, it was a, it was a real sensation in in Germany, um, in the arts. Um, it's a very slim book, kind of a novella length, and um, it's a, it's a, it, it's part crime novel, part uh, study of of village society in Bavaria after the war. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very beautiful. It's very odd. Um, very strange. They're, they're mm. at first, there seems to be an investigator. He sort of fades away and, and the people get to talk very small chapters. Uh, sometimes there's only sort of prayers in, like as chapters, very strange and very hypnotic prayers and beautiful book, The Murder Farm. Right. But we have to come to our recommendations. Yes, I will recommend a book that I'm reading right now and it's just amazing. It's such a fantastic, I really needed this book in my life and it's called Erasure by Percival Everett. Black Rider, who is slightly older than I am, he's like 64, is just the smartest, funniest, well-written novel that I read in a long, long time, Erasure by Percival Everett. I understand there is a film adaptation that's, I don't know if in the process of being released, but it should be out sometime soon, but I just love this book. Cool. Very cool. That's my recommendation. Awesome. So I have a podcast to recommend. And um, Mark Marin, the stand-up comic, has been podcasting his podcast, What the Fuck, WTF, since 2009. And he has like two episodes a week. He's now on episode one. 1478 and these are long podcasts um so i never heard of him he's i i saw his hbo special which is hilarious uh, mm. i had never heard of him either he's he's not necessarily a household name though he's really really well known in comedy mm. um but i started listening to his podcast maybe two months ago um and this week i haven't listened to it yet but i can't wait to listen to it um he is interviewing arnold schwarzenegger mm. and so this very cranky grouchy stand-up comic interviewing arnie i think will be super super hilarious and it's it's a great podcast i listened to Chevy Chase and Tom Papa um, being interviewed, and it's a it's a fantastic podcast because he's always giving an intro about what's happening in his life, and then they segue into the interview, which is not really an interview. It's more like like how we chat. You know, we start with some topic and then it goes down some rabbit hole or other. 
So very cool thing, Mark Maron, what the fuck, no. in, on every platform. All right. All right. right. Okay. So good seeing you. Likewise. And thank you for listening. This is Foreign Domestic and Forbidden, and our intro and outro music is by Springtide, their Coney Island train blues, and it comes to us via the free music archive. Please tune in again in two to three weeks. Bye-bye, <laughs> everybody. Bye.